Good morning. When it comes to dealing with your enemies, there are, there are two options. One is to handle them the way that the world handles their enemies. Option number two, handle them the way that God handles his enemies and desires you to handle your enemies. Uh, however, don't want to put the cart before the horse. As a Christian in here, you don't have option number one. You just have option number two, which is exactly what we see in the text this morning. Uh, if you can open your, your Bible to Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 43, this is a distinction that Jesus is eradicating from our mind that there is multiple ways to treat your enemies, that we can hate our enemies, because that is what the world does. If there's someone they don't like, someone they want to uh, preclude from their relationships, from their gathering, from their, at least when it comes to showing deference to them, showing some care and concern and benevolence toward them, uh, our world says we get to decide dependent upon our feeling and disposition towards people, including our enemies and our foes, that we can say, don't want to love them don't want to at all think about them. I want to get them out of my mind, out of my sight. I don't care anything about them. The problem with that is, is that isn't the way that God loved us. As a matter of fact, as, as a Christian, you got, you got one option here, and it's really the main point this morning. Up on the screen, you'll see it or there on your note sheet, that as a Christian, you have a responsibility to display your relationship with God by reflecting his benevolence and concern for all people including your enemies. You loved it to that last part, didn't you? Like we need to be, have concern. We need to give benevolence to, to all people, comma, including your enemies. That, that no one makes it out of your circle of love, as it's been said. That everybody, as a Christian, ought to, in your mind, in your heart, be included in your care and your concern. It's quite different from the prevailing attitude in Jesus' day. As a matter of fact, it's quite different than the prevailing ethic of our day, isn't it? That we, according to Scripture, are called to love even our enemy, to love those who, who don't love us, uh, to love not just those who are indifferent to us, but to those who outright don't care for us at all, but that we would reciprocate that, not with retaliation like we talked about last week, but with the love of God. See, there's a peculiar reality in the life of a person who will reflect the character of God in their relationships with people that may dislike them or even hate them. And that is this you are just proving the fact that you are who you say you are. If God is love, then God would express and display his love to his people. God has done that, therefore God is love. He's proved his character by who he is and what he has done. And in the same way, if you call yourself a Christian in here this morning, you are who you say you are because of how you reflect the character and nature of God who is love and who does love. So for us as Christians, we have a responsibility to display our relationship with God by reflecting the character and the nature of God by caring and concerning ourselves with others, even our enemies. Now, when, when we say the word relationship, I, I want you to, to refine your definition of relationship in this way. When I say your relationship with God, I don't mean that there is this distant 
uh, yet cordial relationship between you and the God of the universe. Okay, I'm not saying that there's this, uh, there's this way in which I'm familiar with God and he's familiar with me, but yet there's still this discrepancy and this chasm between me and God. Right? That, oftentimes that's how we, even people who claim to be Christians, would define their relationship with God. Uh, however, as we see even here in the text this morning, uh, that's not at all how Christ defines the word relationship. That he says there in verse 45, what? That you may be sons of your father. That there's a relationship definition here that, uh, that transcends any distant but familiar relationship. We're saying that there is a close relationship. That it, it goes to, as far as to say you are his Child, right? There is no, uh, there is no subtle relationship here. This isn't a, uh, I'm familiar with them. We're cordial. We don't talk very much, but they're there if I need them. Kind of relationship with God here. Here, the definition of relationship is you are a child of God. And children, as you know, I have a child. He's in the nursery right now. People always tell me he looks just like you. As a matter of fact, uh, my wife's out of town. I took a picture of Titus as he was napping the other day. Uh, and she shoots a text back and says, he looks just like his father. I'm like, well, yes, absolutely. Why? I mean, he should look like his father because he shares my characteristics. He is part of me. right? In, in the same way, when we say that we are children of God, we include within that close relationship what? That I reflect him. Uh, imperfectly, we might add. But I exhibit the character and the nature of him to whom I belong. And what more peculiar and exacting way ought children of God reflect him more than when it comes to loving their enemies? That being said, look at verse 43 in Matthew 5, 43. Jesus says that you have heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. If you're just joining us, it'd be good for you to know that over the last six weeks uh, in each text, Jesus is taking a rabbinical teaching rabbi, a teacher, those who have been teaching, uh, both the scribes, the Pharisees, used rabbinical tradition or the, the oral uh, the oral uh, law interpretation of the Old Testament, which uh, and have taken it and twisted it to make it say something that God had never intended people to do with it. And so these rabbinical interpretations of the Old Testament, Jesus uh, is saying, hey, this is what you've been taught. These are the prevailing ideas of the day, and here's how I want to correct them to reflect what God's design truly is. And he does it again the last time in this text he says that you have heard it was said, this is what your uh, teachers are telling you, that God wants, that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You see, there's a half-truth in this text. The half-truth is that you should love your neighbor, which is found in Leviticus 19.18. Leviticus 19.18 says that you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is Leviticus 19.18. But the second half that says, and you shall hate your enemy, is taught nowhere in the Bible. Like nowhere in the Bible does God teach that we ought to exercise personal hatred towards people. Now, I had somebody come talk to me uh, in the lobby, which was just good, because uh, there are a lot of 
texts in the Old Testament that talk about how God uh, that hated the people who were abominable or uh, that uh, didn't, is, didn't God use Israel to take over uh, nations and countries? And it's like, absolutely. God in his judicial position of God of the universe utilized nations to discipline other na- nations for being abominations unto the Lord. That does not dictate and exclude that God would not also be benevolent and loving and caring toward those people as well as he would in disciplining the abominable or the sinful. And, and uh, I followed that up by saying, for example, does God love, did God love Israel, yes or no? Okay, uh, was he benevolent towards them? Did God also wipe them out with Assyria and Babylon? See, we can't, we can't, these aren't mutually exclusive, you understand. That God can judge a nation while still having care and benevolence and concern for his creation and for his people. And the second part that I added on to that was because God used the, uh, the nation, the judicial system, the, 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 uh, the national identity of a country to discipline another country, by no means gives us personal permission to exact vengeance like we talked about last week or to exercise personal hatreds in our lives today, right? So although that there were nations that God had used to cast judgment on things that he hated, he nowhere in Scripture gives you personal permission to hate other people and exact your hatred towards other people, right? I just want to give that little that little nuance understanding, and we'll talk more in our podcast later as we talk through uh, some of the nuance of the Old Testament. But nowhere in the scripture does it teach that you ought to exercise hatred towards individuals. But that was the principal ethic of the day of Jesus' time, and not much different than the prevailing ethic of our day, that we get to love those that love us and hate those that we do not want to interact with. <clears throat> there was a group, I, I want to I paint the picture for you that this was the prevailing ethic. There's actually even written uh, in the content of one of the religious sects of that time, the Essenes, which if you know anything about the Essenes, John the Baptist may have at some time been an Essene. They are a, a group of people in, of the monastic tradition, like a monks, right? They go out into the wilderness and they create a little holy huddle out there and they would do a whole bunch of holy things. Uh, and uh, the Essenes, which you may be familiar with because of Qumran, which is where uh, we know uh, we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Anybody familiar? You finally caught on to me at that point, didn't you? Dead Sea Scrolls, those are wonderful. I, some of the, the greatest dis- archaeological discovery of Scripture in the 20th century. Uh, these are the people who would have uh, preserved those in the caves in the Qumran. However, this same group, okay, this same group in their own literature taught this that you ought to teach all the disciples, their disciples, to love all the children of light and to hate all of the children of darkness. Right? That was the prevailing idea of the first century, that you need to love all the children of light and you need to hate all the children of darkness. It's kind of nice, though, for your brain, isn't it? Now, that's easy. That's a nice line in the sand. I now know how to live the rest of my life. Uh, but it's not so given Scripture and Christ's commands. Jesus says, verse 44, go ahead and look at the text there. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. As we talked about here in the introduction, it's the uniqueness of loving your enemy 
is the living proof that you are a child of God, that you are doing something that is not natural, that you are doing something that is particularly supernatural. You don't see people walking around loving their enemies. As a matter of fact, you find it impossible to walk around our culture and our world finding anyone who will outright love and defer and show care and compassion for those that they would call their enemies. There is something peculiar and there is something divine about an individual empowered by the Holy Spirit to love those who do not love them back, to give care and concern and benevolence to people that in the world's eyes don't deserve it. Now we see that here in the rest of verse 45 when it comes to the way that God generally shows benevolence and love to all of creation. As Jesus is proving this idea of loving people, he says, For God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Do you see how uh, the, the prevailing idea of that day, the rabbinical teaching of that day, is very uh, one or the other? It's very binary. Right? Either you're going you're to love those who love you, and you need to hate those who hate you. And, and, and Jesus says, is that the way that God works in his general benevolence and care for the world? I, I, this example at the 9 a.m. Uh, if that were the case, it would be all of the sinners got to go to Seguin. All right. All of the children of light get to stay in New Braunfels. And then anytime, uh, anytime it rains, we, we send it over to Seguin. Okay? Unless we need it to rain, and then we bring it over here. And we keep it over there, and it dries out over there. Or, it's always cloudy in Seguin, but it's always sunny in New Braunfels, because this is just where all the Christians live. Right? Is that how God works? No, it isn't. As a matter of fact, uh, God is, is caring and benevolent and con- is concerned with, with all people in a, very, in a general way. God cares and concerns with all people regardless and without discriminating upon them as individuals. God has a general concern for all of his creation. Think about it this way. As we build this case of God concerning and caring for all people. You and I, as we, we breathe, even as we speak, we're here worshiping God, sitting under the teaching of God's word, uh, and every breath that you are breathing, you recognize as being upheld and given to you and forwarded to you by God. Right? And you say, well, of course, I'm singing his praises. Why wouldn't he preserve my breath? Well, the same group of people who aren't here this morning, who object to God, object to Christianity, and reject the God of the universe, their breath is still being given by God. The same breath that they are breathing is the breath that is being sustained by the holy God of the universe, and they're using that breath to reject and defame the God of the universe. But yet God is still providing the breath for them to even curse him. What a loving God that is. What a God who would show, compare, uh, would show care and compassion in such a way where he wouldn't strike down every person and take away every breath of the people who do not say exactly what he wants in this time. Isn't that interesting? But with that, does God love his children in a particular way? Absolutely. God does love his children. Those who have turned from their sins, placed their trust in the person and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross to take away our sins. Does he love his children in a particular way? Absolutely. He does. We're his children. I mean, just think about the ways that God has particularly loved his children. 
uh, I am going, and I am not going to leave you as orphans. Well, no, he's our, he's, he's our God. He's going to give us his Holy Spirit. Has he given everyone his Holy Spirit? Just his children. Okay, when Jesus says, hey, I'm going to go, and I'm going to go to my Father's house. I'm going to go prepare a place for you, so that where I am, you may also be. Is Jesus preparing a place for everybody in his presence in eternity? Just his children. There's a particular way in which God loves his children. But again, it doesn't remove the benevolent way in which God loves all of his creation in this present age. In this present age that we live, that God is benevolent and caring to the just and the unjust, to the good and to the evil, God is benevolent to them. And I say present age because we, we all recognize that there's coming a time where all of those who reject God will be eternally punished and eternally done away with. But in this present age, God is very benevolent generous with with all people, not wishing that any should perish, but all come to eternal life. So even those who will be judged and will be cast into eternity separated from God and under his judgment, still in this period, God loves and has a great care and compassion for their lives. That ought to be something even the most reformed person in here ought not to forget this morning. And it is this love for his enemies, this care that takes us down the vein of the reality that you sit in here if you are saved simply because God loved his enemy. If you are a Christian in this room, you are the first to recognize that this would be true because God had loved you while you were still a sinner. While you were an enemy of God, he sent his beloved son. We're going to talk about being in the circle of love. No one was closer in love to the Father than the Son, and there was no one further outside of the circle of love than you when it comes to God's family. But yet, for the people furthest outside of the circle of God's love, he sends the one who makes up the nucleus of God's love, the Son, and then sends him here to bring those who are far from God near to God. That's just the gospel of Jesus Christ, that while we were yet sinners, Christ would die for us. And then that way, that his enemies would become his children. And we would enjoy a lifelong loving relationship eternally with God. Now that's God's character on display. As we look at this and we're extracting the application for us, we start recognizing, oh man, I, I have to start loving my enemies. I have to. I can't create distinctions. I can't be sitting here and saying, I choose to love you, and 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 I choose not to love you. I choose not to be deferential to you. I choose not to give you compassion, but I give you compassion because that's not how God loved you. You didn't deserve his love. You didn't earn his love. You weren't prettier than the next person. God loved you because of nothing that you did. The only thing that you added to your salvation was a sin that made it necessary. And if you don't recognize that, you're not going to recognize the love of God. Our job is to love others without distinction. And that sums it up, point number one on your outline. Write it this way. You need to love others indiscriminately. You need to love others indiscriminately. Scripture is full of individuals who are attempting to discriminate in their love. Scripture is full of individuals who, by rejecting God's design and desire for them to love like him, are trying to find loopholes 
to give exceptions to whom they ought to love. One, the most famous one that you know, is found in Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, you have the account, story of the Good Samaritan. You can turn there with me in your Bible for a moment. Luke chapter 10. There in Luke chapter 10, you have a lawyer, right? a Jew, a lawyer, who stood up to put Jesus to the test. Now, it's really important that you understand the introductions of a lot of the parables in Scripture. Because when you read this, you're, you may be taking it from the position of, I'm trying to love the Lord, I'm trying to follow Him wholeheartedly, and this is going to teach me how to do it one-on-one. Okay, But the problem is, the introduction is putting somebody in a position who is not trying to love the Lord and follow him humbly and holy, right? Uh, It says here, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. So is this a guy who's trying to follow the Lord and learn how to love the Lord? Is he? No. Okay, so we recognize that this parable is actually trying to prove a point to someone who's trying to test Jesus. And he says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's the wrong question already. What what must I do to be self-righteous, to merit my way and climb the ladder of salvation and get there on my own goodness? And Jesus said, Well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Uh, And he said, Well, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And so Jesus is baiting him, getting him to this point here. But desiring to justify himself, the lawyer wants to justify himself. He's trying to figure out, okay, I know what the law says. I know it says if I will love the Lord with everything I got and I would love other people, my neighbor particularly, as myself, I'm going to make it. So this is him trying to justify himself, right? Okay, that's all I got to do? Love God? That's okay, I can do that. Now just love your neighbor. And he's trying to justify himself. So listen to what he tries to do. He says this, well, who is my neighbor? You see what he tried to do? He says, Jesus says, you need to love your neighbor. And he's like, okay, I can make it to heaven if you let me narrow down who's my neighbor. If you will let me narrow the path to who's my neighbor. Right? I need a small group of these people. I need to make exceptions. I need to make discriminations based upon who is my neighbor and who's my not. Because here's the deal. I can love these people. But if you're telling me to love everybody, that's a problem. So I'm going to make it into heaven, but you've got, you got to help me do this. Who's my neighbor? I need to know so I can focus on them and leave everybody else out of it. There's your context. And Jesus says, when, to the answer to the question, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by the man on the other side. So as a lawyer who is a a scribe, as a Jew of the Jews, right? I mean, he's thinking, okay, if there's somebody on the side of the road who's half dead and beaten, surely if anybody's going to stop and help that man, it's going to be a priest. I mean, a priest, that's a representation of, of God's worship in his temple. Of course, he's going to help. He makes a point, he says, this person goes around and walks off. And then he says, so likewise, a Levite, so a Levite, a Levite temple attendants, uh, all, of the, all of the priests, all of the Levites come from the tribe of Levi, 
And so this was a temple, temple attendant, those who would help in the worship in the temple. So we're talking about people who should know the law and know what God's expectations are when it comes to benevolence and care and concern for people. The Levite and the priest should know. And so the Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man, passed by on the other side. But, verse 33, a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, this is interesting because you have two of the Jews of the Jews, right? The people who are helping with the worship of the Lord. People are administrating the ordinances at the temple uh, who pass by the man, and you have a Samaritan, which a Samaritan is it's a bad title. We, we talk about the Good Samaritan in our culture today, and it has positive connotations, but there was no such thing as an oxymoronical good Samaritan because to a Jew, Samaritans were bad. Because Samaritans were half Jew, half Gentile. They were Gentiles as the Jews took over the, the Canaan land in, in the Old Testament were people, Jews who went and uh, married or took wives of Gentile nations and then they had children together and they feuded. Because God said, don't go and have children with pagans who don't worship God. And so these Samaritans were just the progeny, or the generations after that. And so these Samaritans were people that Jews loathed and hated. And yet, we have here a Samaritan. And as he journeyed, came to where he was, and he saw him, and he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, which is two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of three of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So when we have the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, you see those who are in need? You see those, even the ones you would consider your enemy, like a Samaritan who has need? Go be a neighbor. So trying to justify himself, the lawyer said, I need to make this a narrow way so I can, so I can do it. Jesus says, can I make it any broader than caring for the people that you don't like when they're in need? That's, that's the principle. You want to love like God? You need to love the people who are the least lovable. You need to go and have genuine care and concern for all of those who are in need of the love of God displayed in their life. You want to reflect the character of God. You love the unlovable. and You love those who are your enemies. Right. Luke 10, 25-37 is the epitome of trying to draw distinctions. But yet Christ, his love was displayed in this way in Romans 5. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we have been justified by his blood. How much shall we be saved from the wrath of God? I want you to think about that for a moment. Think about the text, Romans 5, 8, and 9. That he loves us while we were still sinners. And since we have been justified by the blood of Christ, that the wrath of God has been poured out on Christ on the cross. And those who trust in the blood of Christ to cover our sin, we receive the righteousness of Christ. All of our sin was nailed to Jesus at the cross. So there's the act of love, and then it says, how much more shall we be saved from him, from the wrath of God? Think about this. God's love displayed in this way, that as we've trusted in Christ to take our judgment that we deserve because he took our sin, 
and was placed on Christ, there is a day coming in the future where everyone will stand before the tribunal of God. And as we stand in front of the tribunal of God, whether the Bema Seat or the Great White Throne Judgment, depending on your state of salvation, the unsaved to the Great White Throne Judgment, the saved to the Bema Seat, all of us are going to stand before the tribunal of God, and there is a promise and an expectation and an eager joy that awaits those who have received the love of God through the sacrifice of Christ. How much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God? There is no judgment. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're going to stand before the tribunal of God, and it is the love of God toward his enemies that we would be justified in front of God, that we were his enemies and we became his friends. More than that, his children. Just think about, as you're painting in the lines of the love of God, that you are a recipient of the unconditional love of the Father as you were his enemy, and he made you his child. So, what do we need to do? Well, two things, and they're just in way of the imperatives in verse 44. In verse 44, there are two imperatives that Jesus gives us that we ought to apply to our lives. They are to love your enemy, to pray for those who persecute you. So take one. We need to love our enemies. Love all of those. And I say enemies here, and if you have a subheading above your ESV, it probably says love your enemies. Uh, However, I I want to make sure you understand that we're not just talking about loving our enemies here. The problem is that they weren't loving their enemies. Now we shouldn't take the pendulum this way and say, well, I'm going to forsake all of my people that I love so I can go love my enemies. Stop that. This is why we keep going back and forth throughout all history, because we don't recognize that what Jesus is saying here, you need to love everyone. You need to love your family. You need to take care of your family. You need to love those who do love you, but that shouldn't be at the exception of not loving those who don't love you. So we're going to love everyone. And what does it mean to love? It means to have a genuine concern for the well-being and preservation of others. I think that's a great simple summation of biblical godly love is that we would have a genuine concern for the well-being and the preservation of another. Isn't that the very thing that we would not want to do for an enemy? As an enemy, we don't want to think about their well-being. We don't, be, we don't want to be concerned about how they're doing, and we certainly don't want to preserve them. As a matter of fact, many of us are hoping that our enemies would die sooner than later. But love is saying... I don't wish that they should perish. I wish that they would come to the knowledge of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a matter of fact, then they could be my sibling for eternity. Isn't that what we wish for our enemies? We don't want to deal with our enemies here at all. Imagine living in eternity with your enemies. You think about the love of God. Do you know that's exactly what God does? Every person that God has saved is him making the choice to live eternally with those who are his enemies. We're all trying, we're all desiring to be in eternity forever, thinking that I can't wait to enjoy eternity forever, but yet, from the perspective of God the Father, he recognizes that everyone who steps foot into eternity was his enemy, and he, through his love and care and compassion and salvation through Christ, has invited what scripture would say, an innumerable amount of people before the throne who were all of his enemies, who are now his friends because of him displaying his love and care and concern to preserve others. You know, 
loving people, including your enemies. It's the most godlike thing that you can do. You want to ask, how can I be godly? What is something godly that I can do? There is nothing more godly than loving the unlovable. There's nothing more godly than looking at your enemy in the eyes and deferring to them and caring for them and having concern for them, having deference to them, looking and and hoping to preserve them in some way. There's nothing more godly that a person can do. Secondly, we need to pray. It says you need to pray for those who persecute you. We see this often throughout Scripture. Jesus prays for those who are persecuting him on the cross. Uh, Even in the great high priestly prayer uh, that we see at the end of the Gospels, uh, Jesus is praying for those who do not yet know him, who will know him through the testimony of the apostles. So read, read there real quick. Recognize if he's praying for people who do not yet know him, who will come to know him through the testimony of the apostles, he's praying for his enemies to become his friends through the testimony of the gospel conveyed through the apostles. Did you follow me there? He's praying for his enemies that they would be reconciled to the Father through his sacrifice for them. Stephen does the same thing when he's being stoned, being stoned outside the wall. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Father, forgive them. Give them forgiveness for the sin in which they're inflicting upon me, leading to my own demise. Forgive them. We need to pray for them. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, gives us a snapshot in how we can practically be praying for people, even our enemies. It says this in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, that first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. All right, there's, there's your prayer list. Do you see that? That you would pray and make supplication and intercession and thanksgiving to God be made for all people. So we ask, who all should we pray for? All right, if you're old enough, get a yellow page book, open it up, start at A, and end in Z. That's your prayer list. Did you know your phone book doubled as a prayer list? All those people. You want to know, who does God want us to be praying for? All people. What about our president? Verse 2. For the kings who are all in high positions, for your leaders, for those in governing authority over you, what do we want to do for them? We need to be praying for them. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. Isn't life better for Christians when there's peace in the land? Isn't it? And we got a job to do, don't we? And we got a job to do regardless if there's peace or war. Rather, there's, whether it's silent or whether there's calamity, we got a job to do. But isn't it much better to do our job when there's peace? When we have unity in our country? Isn't it just better that way? Absolutely. We need to be praying for that. We need to be praying for a peace and a constancy in our society where we can, as Christians, lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That's a great thing to be praying for. If you want that, you need to be praying for everybody, including your leaders. And this is what it says, verse 3. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. It's pleasing. You want to say, hey, I want to be pleasing to God today. You want to know how to be pleasing to God today? Be praying like that. And here's here's what it says in verse 4, the final verse. It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So verse 4 does a good job of filling in the content of our prayers for all people. What what should our prayers consist of when it comes to flipping through the yellow pages? When it comes to praying for our enemies? When it comes to praying for our president, our government? What do we do? 
we know that God desires people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So as I'm praying for people, including my enemies, I'm praying that they come to the knowledge of the truth that leads to salvation. So as I'm praying for people that I am at odds with, who are my foes in this world, I'm praying God open their eyes, much like you have Stephen doing, much like you have Christ doing. You yourself are going to say, God, open their eyes to see your salvation. Give them the knowledge of your truth, which I might add, in part, will come from your witness and testimony of loving your enemies. But be praying for that to be true in their life. They would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This kind of love that we just described here stands in contradistinction to the kind of love Jesus says characterizes the rest of the world. I mean, this is way different than the love that we're seeing on TV. Way different than the love we're seeing out on 35 when we're trying to raise past people to get to work to get our own way. It's a lot different than the love we're seeing as we're going to the supermarket. Your kids are coming home from school, taking all of the fights and all the disagreements they've gotten into. A lot different than the love that we're seeing when, when, our, when our kids are fighting with one another. A lot different than the love that we're seeing when our spouses, when we, we're you know, putting up with our spouse and getting in fights and arguments. This is quite different than the love that Jesus has characterized as the world, which he defines well in verses 46 through 47. Look at 46 and 47 with me. Matthew 5, 46 and 47. It says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. That probably didn't hit you the same way that it hit the, tax, that it hit the, the Jews of the day concerning the tax collectors. Okay? That when we just love those who love us, that we're no different than a tax collector. You see, no one in all of history that I've been able to find loves their tax collectors Okay, and I don't think we love our tax collectors. Okay? Uh, but it's quite different in the situation that you found yourself in in first century Israel. Uh, the tax collectors were the variety from the Roman Empire. And as Rome would take over nations, they would pay for their expansion of Rome as they're taking over the nations and as they're governing them, they would exact payment and taxes from all of the people there. And one way, Rome was great in the sense that they let people, they left people to a semi-autonomous rulership of themselves, uh, but not without heavily taxing them and expecting things of them that they were not willing to give, particularly in the way uh, of Jerusalem and Israel who wanted to live the way they wanted to live, worship God the way that they wanted, kind of like Texas in a lot of ways, okay? But here's how it worked. Rome needed the taxes from the cities, and instead of taking their own people from Rome and inserting them into the nation, Rome would employ locals. So you would have Jews exacting taxes for Rome by Jews. Okay? So there was nothing more treacherous and traitorous to a Jew than another Jew exacting taxes for Rome from the Jews. Okay? That's part one. Part two, what made it even worse was Rome had a deal with all the tax collectors. Simply this. Here's a quota. Here's a number. This number, this is what we need from your region. Give us that number, no questions. Matter of fact, we don't care how much more money you take from everyone in this region. We just need this number. So the chief tax collectors would have guys underneath them, guys underneath them, and they would go and they'd be making a deal. Take this much from everyone. Whatever else you decide to take, that's yours to keep. Thieves. And so a tax collector was seen as a traitor and a thief of the worst kind. 
And Jesus says, if you love the way the world loves, if you just love those who loved you, you're no better off than a treacherous, thieving tax collector. In your words, not mine. And he gives in verse 47 another illustration defining the problem with loving like the world loves. He says, if you greet only your brothers, I can talk about the church in that situation. When people walk in here and you go straight to the people you know and love, you give them a handshake, you say good morning to them, but you pass everyone else in the room. We'll just keep that there. You just chew on that for a while. Okay. And you greet only your brothers. What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. That's strike number two. Gentiles? You're calling me a Gentile? You remember, a Gentile were, non, were non-Jews. And Gentiles were in part characterized by the fact that they did not submit to the God of Israel. Uh, and they did not desire the things of God. They wanted to live their own way with their own passions and their own desires. So there was just another way to be called a godless person. And Jesus says here, if you only greet those and only care about those who care about you, those you call your brother, what more are you doing than the rest of the world, you godless person? It's a lot stronger, isn't it? When you understand what Jesus is saying. You see, if you love like the world loves, you don't yet comprehend the love of God. And that brings questions of salvation in a person's life. If we only can fathom a love that looks like the world, we don't have the love of God in us. And that's the good news of verses 45. For those who are in Christ, Romans 5.8, Matthew 5.45 tells us we are going to, if we are in Christ, reflect the character and the nature of God. We're going to do it. Are we going to do it imperfectly? Absolutely, but we're going to do it. So absolutely, matter of factly, one of the great truths and the assurances of your salvation is that you would display love indiscriminately, even towards your enemies. Are you going to do it perfectly? I told you, absolutely not. But you are going to display it. You're going to display a love qualitatively different than the love of the world. You're going to display a kind of love that is peculiar and offensive to the world. Because as you love the way that God loves, the world sees that you are condemning the definition of the world's love. As a matter of fact, the world loves in a very conditional way, doesn't it? There are many secular wedding vows nowadays that say, you know, I'll marry you as long as love shall last, right? It's no longer till death do us part. It's as long as love shall last. And then, like, they go to their honeymoon in the day after, and they're like, should have rewrote those, okay? Because love doesn't last as long as I thought it did when I define it the way the world defines it. My love is very conditional. I didn't realize marriage was this hard. I didn't realize it. And my definition of love is not at all indicative of what Scripture says. I'm out. Very conditional. The world loves until it's offended. You've noticed that? I mean... And this is something as Christians, we need, to, we need to grow and we need to recognize and repent in a lot of ways here because we love a lot like the world loves when it comes to this topic. When you're offended, you flee, you run away, you attack, and you don't restore the relationship. That's worldly love if we love until we're offended and then we leave. The world loves until they're disagreed with. You see, if we're not careful, the church just becomes another, another organization of the world. When we disagree, then I say, well, I'm just going to decide not to talk to you anymore. I'm just going to decide not to have anything to do with you anymore because we disagree. Is that the love of God? 
who vehemently disagreed with everything that you did, right, to whom you rejected, you offended God, you are an offender of God, that was literally your status, and yet he didn't reject you and turn away from you, but yet gave you his son, that you would come to him. Right, if you love like the world loves, it's a worldly kind of love that's not God's love. See, the love of God, it's well-defined in Scripture. The love of God is self-giving, self-sacrificial, love. We have a God who is self-giving, self-sacrificing, and seeks the good of others, even his enemies. And if we're going to love like God, we need to be giving of ourselves, we need to be sacrificing of ourselves, and we need to be seeking the good of others, even our enemies. Really, it comes to this. If we're going to love like God, we have to reject the world's superficial definition of love. That's point number two. You need to reject the world's superficial definition of love. Reject the world's superficial definition of love. There's a scene on uh, Crocodile Dundee. Paul Hogan, yeah, come on. All right, there's a scene. He's in Los Angeles, and uh, him and Sue, they're, they're walking around Los Angeles at night. Not a smart thing to do, but they did it anyway. And... Uh, this guy comes out from behind a pole and pulls out a switchblade knife. And he says, I got a knife. Give me your things. And uh, Paul Hogan, Crocodile Dundee, says, that's not a knife. This is a knife. And he pulls out this foot-long buoy knife, unsheathes it, and shows him a knife. You see, and the guy scurries off and runs away. Uh, the point being is the guy thought he had a comprehensive definition of what a knife was until somebody showed him a comprehensive definition of a knife. And once he recognized the comprehensive definition of a knife, he recognized that the thing that he was holding on to wasn't so much a knife after all. And as a Christian, it's incumbent upon you as a Christian to unsheathe the love of God and help people understand the comprehensive love of God. Because everyone right now is running around with their version of love, and until they can compare it to the comprehensive definition of love, they're going to think that what they got is the stuff. They're going to think that the little old piddly thing in their hand is the comprehensive definition of love until you got something different to show them. And you're going to have to show them. And if you're going to show them, you got to reject the world's superficial definition of love, and you got to show them what real love is. we got to show them what God's love is, that it's self-giving, self-sacrificial, seeking the good of others. It isn't insisting upon my own ways. It's giving of myself the good of others, including my enemies. If we're going to do that, just a one way of application, we need to start understanding what the Bible says about love. We need to be looking to Scripture for the definition of love and stop letting culture define what love is. Right? Love is not love. Love is what God says love is. And if God is love, I have to make sure I submit myself unto the definition of love according to God's word. When you contrast the world's love and God's love, you'll find that they're two very different things. Jesus sums up our role when it comes to properly living out everything that he's taught from verses 21 to 48. These are the sixth antithesis of the rabbinical tradition I told you earlier about. He's summing it up here in this last verse of what we should do. So verse 48 isn't just a summation of the pericope or the small section of Scripture we're talking about. 
this morning, Jesus in verse 48 is summing up all of verses 21 through 48. And so in all things about loving others, retaliating eye for an eye, when it comes to making promises and commitments, when it comes to marriage and divorce and anger and lust and adultery, when it comes to all those things, what is God's expectation for the Christian? Verse 48. Here's the standard. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That should do two things to you. Number one, it should deflate you a little bit. Right? You're like, that's, that's impossible. Absolutely, that's what the law does. It's a mirror. Remember, we've talked about this. The law is a mirror. You look into it, you realize just how ugly you are. It's what the law does. It's what it's meant to do. It's meant to show you just how far the discrepancy is between you and a holy God. Now, as a Christian, as a non-Christian, that's the single focus of the law. That's it. That's what it's supposed to do. Until you recognize your sinfulness and your ugliness and turn from your sin and place your trust in Christ. That's all the law is doing for you as a, as a non-Christian. Okay, If you're a non-Christian here, you don't even know, this is a good thing for you to pay attention. If you keep looking in the mirror and you start trying to do the things that God's telling you to do, you're just going to start looking uglier and uglier and uglier and uglier. That's the work of the law for the non-Christian. That's what it's meant to do. It's meant to draw you to a place where you say, I can't do this. There's step two. You can't do it. Now, Step three is turn from your sins, place your trust in the, in the Christ who did do it on your behalf. Okay? The Christian, the law is twofold for you. Okay? The law is both a mirror that reminds you that you don't measure up, but it's also, secondly, God's design and desire for the individual who is empowered by the Holy Spirit and given a new heart that you would walk in his way that you would truly be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, that you would strive through the power of God's Spirit to imitate His character in every area of life. Right? And if you think that's too high, let me remind you of the Scripture that we've been looking at over and over again. And if you don't remember it, jot it down. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. It's important. This is a central verse talking about what the new creation that Christ makes in regenerate believers allows us to do. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and cause you to be careful to obey all my rules. Do you see this? For the Christian... When it comes to Christ's standard and expectation that you would be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, we recognize that he's not just being using hyperbole. It's not a hyperbolic statement. He's saying, here's the expectation, and here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take away that heart of stone that's made it impossible for you to follow me. I'm going to take it out. I'm going to put in a heart of flesh. And with that new heart of, with that heart of flesh, that new nature I've given you, making you a new creation, I'm then not going to leave you there to figure it out on your own. Then I'm going to give you my spirit, and I'm going to put my spirit in you. And it is that, my spirit drawing the new creation, that new heart, then will cause you to walk in my ways and my commands. Do you see the, the, the promise and the hope there? We're like, well, how can I love like, how can I not lust and commit adultery? How can I not lash out in anger? How can, I, how can I do what God wants me to do? If you're not a Christian, you can't. If you're a Christian, 
Turns out God has provided a way for you to follow him obediently, perfectly, without, without messing up ever? No. But there is something called progressive holiness, progressive sanctification, that he has you on a track of perfecting you every single day of your life as you're walking in step with the Spirit. And although we fail periodically, we repent, we seek forgiveness, and we pursue God. And there's the promise that he is going to be perfecting us every day of our life. And that's why no matter how long you've been a Christian, it doesn't matter if you're 10 in here or 90, like you have room to grow because you're still here. And God, is exist- God has you here existing that he would conform you into the image of his son until glory, until he comes and gets you and brings you to himself. And because that's the truth, we need to do this, and it's point number three. We need to intentionally pursue progressive holiness. I know it's a mouthful, but I think a very important theological distinctive that we need to know as Christians. Intentionally pursue progressive holiness. That you have been made righteous by no work of your own, by faith in Christ Jesus. And as you've placed your trust in Christ, or as Christ has produced faith in you, I might say, He has given you his spirit that you would progressively find being made in a progressive way righteous through your life. That you'd be sanctified from here on out. You're a Christian for one year. You find that God's done a lot of work in your life. Anybody been a Christian in here for five to ten years? Are you the same person you were five to ten years ago? You've been sanctified, haven't you? You've been progressively conformed into the image of Christ. And that's the goal of progressive holiness and that's the goal of you intentionally pursuing progressive holiness right pursuing progressive holiness stands in distinction between me being a passive participant if there was something you were a passive participant in it was your salvation you are a very passive participant in your salvation everything there god produced in you for you through him okay however when it comes to progressive holiness you do not possess your own holiness it is something that has been provided for you through the holy spirit but you have a cooperative part to play in in your life. It's cooperation. It's, it's the, the synergy. It's you partnering with the Holy Spirit in your life to be faithful to the Lord. And that is our role as Christians, is to intentionally pursue progressive holiness. One text, 1 Timothy 6, 11. You can just jot that down. I want, you to, I want to show you at least that Scripture has no knowledge of this passive uh, participation in holiness, it's meant for you to participate. First Timothy six eleven, Paul says to Timothy, "But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. So flee the things that the world is running after. Flee the sin. Flee the desires of your youth. Pursue righteousness. That's an imperative. The flee is an imperative, and pursue is an imperative. To pursue righteousness. I want you to think about that. In Scripture, it calls us to pursue something, to advance." in the realm of righteousness. Now, we can only do that if we're empowered by the Holy Spirit and given a new heart in Christ Jesus through turning from our sins, placing our trust in Christ. But as we have, we are called to pursue righteousness. So when I look at verse 48, I'm saying there is work to do, but there's a promise there that God is going to finish what he started. Isn't that what Scripture teaches? That he who began a good work to you will bring it to completion. And there's the faith and the hope in verse 48 that tells me I've got work to do when it comes to loving others and my enemies. When it comes to trying to exact an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a blow for a blow. i got work to do. i got a work to do when it comes to keeping my word and making my yes a yes and my no a no. 
when it comes to prioritizing marriage and the institution of marriage and, and esteeming it highly, when it comes to not harboring anger in my heart, having murderous intentions with my mind towards other people, when it comes to committing adultery and having lustful thoughts and, in, and, and temptations in my mind, I mean, those are all things that we need to improve on, Christians in the room. And it's why when you read verse 48, there's the hope and the promise of the Christian having the propensity and the capacity through the Holy Spirit to pursue righteousness in those areas that a non-Christian knows nothing about, only that every time they try, they look worse and worse, which is the works that the law is meant to accomplish in the life of the Christian. Nevertheless, for us, we ought to be intentionally pursuing progressive holiness. And to bring it back to the front, that pursuance of progressive holiness, that recognition that we ought to display the character of God through love is evidence of your adoption, is evidence of your relationship. You want assurance? People want assurance People all the time. How can I be sure I'm saved? Do you look like your father? Like, how can I be sure Titus is my son? He's, look at him. He, he, you're not going to be able to say he's not. And that's the whole nature of the Christian faith. How do I know that I'm a child of God? Look at him. Look at him. Does looking at him make him saved? Does them trying to look the part make them saved? No, but it's the fruit of salvation that you look like your father. Let us do so when it comes to the way that we love our enemies. Let's pray. God, I do thank you for this time. I thank you for the preaching of your word. I pray that it was clear and concise, and I pray that it was poignant, and I pray that it was penetrating the heart, both to wound it and to heal it. Both, God, not to leave people here without the hope of the gospel but to show them that your word is, is penetrating it's like a double-edged sword piercing through all the way down to the joint and the marrow you discern the thoughts of men from afar i just pray that your word god would pierce us but then it would heal us with the hope of the gospel of jesus christ and motivate us god and propel us towards a life of progressive holiness in which we recognize that we have a part to play in following after you as you have saved us from our sins, as you have taken us who are enemies and made us your friends. So God, my prayer this morning for this church is that our church would be a beacon in this community of the love of God, that we would love our enemies, that we'd pray for those who persecute us, thus showing that we are children of our Father. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.